chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, I'll read verses 9 through 15. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 15. I would invite you to follow along with me. If you have a copy of God's Word, you may read there as I read aloud. Uh, but listen, listen as I read from God's Holy Word. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted or reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham, or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, we come to you, and we ask that you might bless the preaching of your word, that you might grant to us, each and every one of us here, that is not ours already, a renewed, regenerate will. And that will being made new, resting resting upon your righteousness for us by faith laying hold of the promises that are of God that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus finding ourselves acquitted justified innocent of all fault Lord how glorious this truth is in your word that sinners might be reconciled to a holy God Lord, may this be us today so that we might then go forth from this place obeying as the fruit of faith given. We pray these things then in your holy and awesome name. Amen. Uh, you'll remember, perhaps, as we've moved through Romans chapter 4 that Paul has turned to Abraham and David both as those who are examples of how faith is that very thing that brings about righteousness. It brings about a state of law-keeping. That even those, verse 7 of chapter 4, who are lawless in the flesh are forgiven by faith in Christ whose works are imputed or given counted to us. And so Paul 
quoting David, writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You and I, from the moment of our conception, are in sin. This is why it was necessary that the Messiah be not conceived by man, but by the Holy Spirit. And so we confess that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born of the Virgin Mary. You and I, by right of our parents' sin, by right of Adam's sin, are conceived in iniquity. And ever before we drew breath, we are stained. We are hopeless. And this is why Paul says that it is legally speaking quite possible to merit the favor of God if you have not sinned. But the problem with that is, ever before we were responsible for our own actions, we are condemned. We are already guilty before God, who stands as judge of all the living. And so it is only by faith where the works of Christ are counted to ours. Now, when we speak of Christ's redeeming work, I want you to think of his saving work under two categories. Christ's active and passive obedience. Maybe you've heard these terms before. Maybe you have not. Christ's active obedience is his keeping of the law fully, without sin. Christ's passive obedience is suffering as the Messiah under the weight of our sins and the wrath of God. That both of these obediences are counted to us so that through Christ Jesus, we need no more suffer punishment and we need add nothing to the law save holding to Christ. That is, by faith, which itself is not a work, but a resting upon the work of Christ Jesus. Now, as Paul continues through Romans chapter 4, the question then is, at what point was Abraham's faith counted or reckoned unto him? Was it reckoned unto him before circumcision or after circumcision? And so the question of how... How are we acquitted by faith is here connected to when. When does that acquittal take place? And that is the question that Paul answers here and then draws a connection only between Abraham and all of the heirs of the promise. Is it therefore by the law or by faith? Two points that I want to make then this morning. Number one, justified before circumcised. Justified before circumcised. We see that in verses 9 through 12. And then secondly, a promise made through faith. A promise made through faith. And we see that in verses 13 through 15. But let's look at this first point. Justified before circumcised. Now, the question is, to whom does the blessedness of forgiveness and the imputation of our sins upon Christ, the Messiah, to whom does this blessedness come? Is it only to the circumcised, but also to the uncircumcised? That's the question. 
Now, the simple answer is this, that Abram's faith and his believing the promise happened, temporally speaking, before the sign of circumcision. Genesis chapter 17. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Genesis 22, verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, both of those chapters and declarations of the promise and intent of God, wherein the sign of circumcision was given, follow Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In fact, I read that last week. Or Abraham believed the promise of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous by faith some years before the sign of circumcision was given in Genesis chapter 17. Now to me, to us, that settles the question. But there is more that can be said. And as this blessedness, that is the covering and forgiveness of our sins, come to the circumcised alone, or does it come to those also who are uncircumcised? Now, as I said already, this is a question about whether or not circumcision is the component of Abraham's life that God counts as his righteousness. Now, Paul answers that question in the beginning of Romans 4, no. What did he find with works of the law? He did not find forgiveness. What Paul is dealing with here is, yes, faith versus works, and in this section, the question of how Abraham's faith was dealt to him or reckoned to him and how it is connected to the question of when did justification come, before or after circumcision. Now, Paul answers the question posed in number 9, verse 9 rather, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? In the second part of verse 9 in verses 10 through 12, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Okay, that we know already. Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Because the question and the debate between the Judaizer and the Gentile, at least if we use those categories, is Paul uses them in Romans chapter 4. The Jews would say that that reckoning did not happen until after circumcision. Now, this connecting of temporal order is not the primary thrust of Paul here. Paul is not saying, in essence, or making a defense of what is often called credo-baptism or believer's baptism, that circumcision and the sign of the new covenant, that is, baptism, necessarily follows justification. 
But instead, that circumcision plays no part whatsoever in our being declared righteous. That Abraham was fully acquitted, fully counted righteous ever before he was circumcised. In the same way today as it relates to our baptism, it is not instrumental in our being acquitted. But instead, it is a sign and seal of what is needed in order for our sins to be acquitted. The washing of our sins. This was a lesson the Jews had not learned because they did not see that it was the blood and righteousness of Christ applied to them that makes one clean. Instead, what they did is they conflated the sign and seal, that is circumcision, to the justifying act of God by counting the worthiness and righteousness of the Messiah in our stead. How did they make that mistake? By rejecting the Messiah. And so they believed that in order to be righteous, it was necessary not only to believe, but also to be circumcised. And that unless one was circumcised, there was no salvation whatsoever. But this is false. They were adhering to the plan and path of salvation that Paul described in the second chapter of Romans and then later fully describes in verses 13 through 15. In fact, in verses 13 through 15, we'll get there in a moment, Paul, in essence, repeats the error that the Jews made that is described in verses 9 through 12. In verses 13 through 15, Paul is saying that if the promise is passed down or is given through the law and not by the promise that is laid hold of by faith, then there is no effect and the promise is made void. And so if salvation, dear saints, or let's say that component of salvation that we call justification, is up to sacramental right, then there is no need for the Messiah's working. You and I have everything at our disposal that is needed to be justified in the eyes of God. Are you following me? And so it would have to follow then that blessedness not, does not come as a promise of God from above, but from our working, of which circumcision would be the first and primary act of that meriting the favor of God. But this is not the way it is, because Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we may say we no longer make that error. We are not so slow, theologically speaking, as to look at Romans chapter 4 and say, of course you do not have to be circumcised to be acquitted before God. But the error of the Jews is not unlike the error of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. This religious sentiment is one that is universally felt. In this way, that ultimately before God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, it is what we are able to do with our hands that sustains our calls before him. That we can, in our own strength and with our own hands, acquit ourselves before the throne. 
that we can help ourselves, that we can plead something in addition to the blood and righteousness of Christ that would cause us to stand righteous in his sight. That when we seek to cover ourselves in our own goodness, rather than to look to the Lord to be covered, we find ourselves making the same error. In answering the question, to whom does blessedness come? It comes to those who, apart from the sign and seal of circumcision, are reconciled to God by faith. This is why even our own confession, we say that though baptism is an essential component as a sacramental rite of the Christian church, if it be not observed, it is not an unpardonable sin. Rather, circumcision was given to Abraham as he continues in this section between verses 9 and 12 as a sign and seal of what had already been done. God regenerated Abraham. Now, Paul is not speaking here of the order of salvation and that element of it that is regeneration. Though we know that regeneration precedes faith in the order of salvation, Paul begins here, and the debate is really over faith versus works. And how is the righteousness of God accounted to us? It is by faith. Now, I think it bears repeating, because as often as we hear salvation by grace through faith, we often turn to ourselves and the instrument of our own morality, our own law-keeping, as an element that provides us greater confidence before the throne. Now, Paul is not also in Romans 3 and in Romans 4 saying that works are to be avoided or they're to be despised, that the law is something to be scorned. But circumcision and the keeping of the law have no justifying effect. There is nothing that you and I can do to give us innocent standing before the throne of heaven and earth. It is an impossibility. And so the question then is, how does this righteousness come? How does it come? Look at the end of verse 12, or let's look at verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, before Paul would have you say, all right, it is only then to the uncircumcised that is also wrong. For what of the Jew who believed? What of Paul himself? Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. What happened to Paul on the eighth day of his life? We all know he was circumcised. Does that then exclude him? Or, as I've answered already, give him greater standing within the covenant family of God? No. It neither includes or excludes Paul or Peter or Matthew or Luke or any of the disciples that were themselves Jews. 
in the flesh, having been circumcised on the eighth day. Paul even speaks of this. I am the Jew of Jews. And what does Paul later say? Where does that get me in terms of my standing before God? Nowhere. But neither does that circumcision exclude me unless what? I lean upon that circumcision as an act of law-keeping to acquit me before God. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that as it relates to what is done in the flesh, God is no respecter of persons. What counts? Faith. And this itself is a gift of God. That you and I have nothing at our disposal whatsoever that includes or excludes us from the covenant. And so Abraham, therefore, is not the father only of those who are circumcised of the flesh or those who are not circumcised of the flesh, but those whose righteousness is imputed to them by faith. So that Abraham is the father of Paul, And Abraham is our father. Because Abraham is the father of the seed. And all those who would come after him. Namely Christ. And by God's grace all who are united to him. This justification then. That occurs before circumcision. Is the guarantee. It is the surety. That all that is needed in order to be acquitted before God is hope and faith in the promise. And that leads me then to the second point. A promise made through faith. Let's look at verse 13. For the promise that he, that is Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham is not the heir by the keeping of the law, but by the promise of God. Uh, On this, John Murray writes, Law commands, and it produces wrath when it is violated. It knows no grace. Promise is the assurance of gracious bestowment. It is a free gift. Assuming this antithesis between the provisions of the law and the provisions of promise, Paul asserts categorically that not through law was the promise to Abraham. It was not through the law. And so when you see here law, it is not the Mosaic law. It is the law or the system for which circumcision is the stand-in or the summary of. Paul was not made heir through circumcision, but through faith. In the same way, we become heirs not by circumcision, but by faith. Abraham... Abraham was promised what? In Genesis 17, in Genesis chapter 22, what was he promised? I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is 17, verse 6. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And then in verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 17, again, Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. 
If the church was an institution that was founded upon the same sacramental rites of all false religions, how then could the promises be realized? Do you understand that it would separate us in no way from the false religions of this earth? If Christianity were another one of those, just go and busy yourself in covering yourself with the stuff of earth, where would the power be? And this is the problem in the church today when the gospel is removed from the pulpits of the churches today. When you remove the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, you remove what makes the inheritance happen. Lewis speaks of this in terms of culture and education, that we geld men and then we bid them to be fruitful. That we take away the organ of fruitfulness and we say, go be fruitful. And we demand of men to have courage without chests. If you remove from the gospel the thing that makes the gospel the gospel, salvation by grace through faith and not of the keeping of the law, then there can be no inheritance of the promise given to Abraham. What that means in turn is this, that if you and I busy ourselves with the belief and proclamation that we are heirs of the world, not by the law, but by promise, we will receive our inheritance. And what is that inheritance? What does God promise to Abraham? That we will possess the gates of our enemies And yet we live in a day and age where we are told by those who lead the Christian church, do not be concerned with the gate of your enemies, but stay in your lane, whatever that lane is. I don't know what, I mean, what lane is left. Do not busy yourselves with the conquering of the nations, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but what? Be content But what the promise is, is a consummated new heavens and new earth. That the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant will be that on the last day of human history, there will be no kingdoms left to men that do not call upon Christ as Lord. And you may say, how does that happen And I would say to you, you must believe as Abraham believed, that even if he were to kill his own son, God would raise him from the dead. That faith that Abraham possessed to believe the Lord and it was counted to him as righteous, I wonder if we possess that faith. Do we believe that we are heirs of this glorious promise, that we are heirs of the world? And not by law. What does that mean then for us who are inheritors of it? That we cannot force the issue by the keeping of law or the strength of arms. Only by what? That God will over time. As a little bit of leaven works its way through the lump or that mustard seed grows... He will bring about the consummation of his promises and it will happen. 
It will happen. And this we must believe by faith. You see, we have reduced the promises of God to one element, salvation. And not only salvation, but to our own individual salvation. But what drove Abraham to go to the point that he was willing to kill his own son? It wasn't belief in some reformed ordo salutis or justification by faith alone. He was justified by faith. But it was not the merit of Abraham's theological orthodoxy. It was what? That he counted himself as one who had been given the promises of God, who was willing to do what God had asked because he believed that God would even raise his son from the dead. You see, this is the Christian kingdom, is it not? When the disciples were gathered in the upper room, The Messiah had died. God had done to his son the very thing that he did not even ask Abraham to go all the way with. And because God gave up his son, it is not through the keeping of the law, but a holding to the promise For if, verse 14, those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So as it relates to the law, Paul is not saying that we are to then as antinomians, anti-law, reject the law. No, the law brings wrath, not because the law is bad, but because it is weak in relationship to the supplying of what man needs before God, that is, acquittal. The law was not designed for that purpose. It never was. The law gives light and understanding. It shows the beauty and holiness of God. It is of great value and worth, and it is to be treasured. But it is not that which gives life to those who are under the curse of disobedience to it. In this, it is powerless. It is powerful only in one way. It shows you exactly where you have gone astray, and it does a great job of that, which is why we ought to use the law in evangelism. And we are to take, parents, you do this with your children. You take the law, and you... Pull them across it and you say, this is exactly what you have violated. Now, you can leave them there and they would be very much aware of their sins but without hope. And without the hope of the gospel, what would their response to that law be? They would endeavor to cover themselves so that they would not feel that guilt all the time. And so what we do when we go out and we go into the world with the gospel, we say, here is exactly what God thinks of you. Here is the law and what it says of your life. You bring them to the foot of the cross. Calvin refers to this as the second use of the law of God. And you bring them to that place where out of sight of their own misery and sin, they say, woe am I, I am a sinner and I am undone. 
It is when Isaiah glimpsed the holiness of God that he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then God came to him and touched his mouth with a hot coal. He purified and sanctified him and said, I will give you this message to go to those of unclean lips and unclean hearts so that they may be clean. How does God do this? It is, again, not our keeping of the law, but of Christ keeping it for us. What Paul wants us to see is that ultimately, Abraham's salvation and our salvation is a gift given that has been arranged by the first and second person of the Godhead. Now bear with me for just a couple more minutes. In the larger catechism, questions 31 and 32, and the answers that accompany them, this is what we read. And if I were to ask you this question, I want you to answer it, not aloud, (laughs) answer it silently to yourself. With whom was the covenant of grace made? Think about it. You can hear the Jeopardy music playing in the background. Who was it made with? Now, of all the people I've ever asked that question of, their default answer is the saints. Uh, No. Now, you may say, okay, fine, whatever. (laughs) I don't know. Here's the answer. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam. And in him, with all the elect as his seed. In the same way that the covenant of works was made with whom? Adam. But not because he was merely a man, but because he was the covenant representative of all mankind. And so we speak of all of human history being represented before God under two men. Adam and the second Adam, who is Christ. The reason why this is so important is because if we understand that our salvation, our inheritance, our eternal dwelling place sits underneath the authority and responsibility of Christ, it puts our works in perspective, doesn't it? And that leads us to question 32. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant, that is the covenant of grace, that is made with Christ and through Christ us. The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator, and life and salvation by him, and requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him. Promise and gives his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. We need to understand that as it relates to our salvation, it is the product of the fullness of the working out of the persons of the Godhead to bring us to a place 
where we can rest and say, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Or the toiling of my flesh can make my spirit whole. Because what would you bring? In fact, you are one level disconnected from this whole process. When God the Father made the world, he made man as a gift to his son out of a love he had for him. He gave him a bride, a covenant people. And when Adam and his wife sinned and all men fell, the father said to the son, go and get your bride. And the great travesty of every false religion is to say that the bride has no need of her husband. That man need no mediator. That we can through the law and not the promise by faith gain for ourselves the blessings that God has in store for us. That is something we ought not believe. And that is something that we ought to strive to remove from the hearts and minds of our neighbor as their gospel. For it is not a gospel that saves. It is tempting, but it cannot save. And so may we not only believe, but proclaim that true gospel. Let's pray.